and welcome. We are in week three of a series titled, I've Got Questions. And over the last month, over the last three weeks, we've simply been doing one thing, looking at the Bible, looking at scripture, and answering some common questions or common objectives that many of us have about it. In fact, uh, one of the things that's been fun about this series is that over the course of this series, you've been able to submit questions, and you can see the number up on the screen where you can actually submit those questions. And next week, we'll be taking uh, the questions that have been sent and kind of filtering through them and answering different ones for our time together. And so I'm excited to be able to do that, to answer your questions. But just so we're on the same page, just make sure we're, we're all caught up together. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Bible and answering questions about that we, maybe answering questions that we commonly ask. And if you remember, we said in the very beginning, we said that the Bible is really not just a book. It's really a collection of 66 different books or ancient manuscripts or ancient documents that are written by a total of 40 different authors spanning a time period, and they're written from 1,500 years, covering three different continents and three different original languages. And despite all of that diversity, Despite all of that variance, what you find in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation through all 66 books is one consistent story. The story of a God who loves his people and will do anything and everything to pursue them, to chase them down, and to rescue and redeem them back to himself for his glory. We also said that sometimes one of the, the hang-ups we have around reading the Bible is we're just not sure if it's accurate. We're not sure if it's really reliable, right? That makes sense because the Bible as a book was originally these oral traditions and it was these manuscripts that were copied by scribes over time. And so the Bible, the, the, the pages of scripture that we have today really have been changed and modified and added and subtracted and they've been theologically proofed and they, they turned out to say the thing the church has wanted them to say. And so the Bible that we have now isn't really even that accurate compared to the original Bible that we had thousands of years ago. And last week we said that's not the case. We said that the Bible as an ancient document is actually the most accurate and the most reliable historical document that has ever existed. We said there has never been a single archeological discovery that has ever discredited any claim the Bible makes. We also said that if you look at, at comparing the Bible and the ancient manuscripts to any other ancient book that historians agree are reliable and true, we find that the Bible is exponentially, the number of ancient manuscripts exponentially exceeds those of anything else. It's true and it's accurate. The Bible that we hold in our hands, that we download on our phones, that we read on the internet is the most accurately translated and reliable ancient document that has ever existed in the history of the world. Perhaps this is why scripture itself tells us this in Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The author, David, says that the word of God, the Bible, scripture, are, it is perfect and it is trustworthy. The things it says are true and accurate. 
Now, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, and maybe you're not one yet, and I believe you will be it someday in your life because I know God is good and faithful, but as a Christ follower myself, I believe that yes, the Bible is accurate. Yes, it is true. Yes, it is reliable as a historical book, but not only that, the Bible is living. It is active. It is more than just a historical document that tells about what happened. It tells the story about what God does each and every day in the hearts and minds of men and women. It is a living document, the living word of God. Look at how David continues in this. He says it's perfect and trustworthy. And then he says, the precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. It endures forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. It's living. It's active. Perhaps this is why later in the Psalms, a couple hundred chapters later in Psalm 119, verse 11, David says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. King David had reached this point in his life where he says, I have hidden your word in my heart. In other words, if we were to translate that to kind of like 21st century, he would say, I have downloaded your word. I have made it available offline. I have hidden your word in my heart because I know that there is significant worth and value in what it has to say. I know that it has the power to transform and change someone from something to something each and every day. Why did he do this? How did he do this? He made it the core of who he was. He took it from being pages on, or words on a page and made them things that are true to his life. And you see, I, I think I believe that each and every one of us, if we, if we ever got to a place where scripture was less about the words on the page and more about how it was in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, we would begin to see radical transformation, transformation that we never dreamed of, transformation that we could never imagine or think about, transformation that would make us a totally different person than before we began to read scripture. Because here's what I think, and, and maybe I'm wrong, I think there are a lot of us that if we were honest, we would say there's things about our life we wish were different. There's just things that don't feel right. And maybe, maybe it's not like, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you are, maybe you've been following Jesus your entire life, or maybe you're here just checking things out and you're, you're unsure, you're, not, you're, not, you're just not ready yet. But let me just say this, I think regardless of where we are on this spiritual continuum in our faith journey, I think there are a lot of us who are asking big questions, seeking big answers, things like, what is my purpose in life? Is this all there is? Is this continual cycle of, of going to work and coming home or going from my upstairs to work in my basement and going back upstairs, is this all there is in my life? Is there more to it? Am I missing something? Where's the joy, the satisfaction, the hope, the thing I look forward to? I don't see it or experience it. Maybe we have a, a relationship in our, our lives, a, a significant other, a spouse, or, or a child, or a parent, and we say, man, this relationship just doesn't feel right. It feels close, but it's just missing something. 
and we're wondering, we're, we're questioning, we're, we're searching, we're trying to figure out. Maybe for us there's this continual mistake that we keep making in our lives and we keep coming back to it no matter how many times we try, no matter how many times we say, I'm not going to do it this time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get better, I'm going to move forward, but yet we find ourselves doing it over and over and over again, week after week, month after month, year after year. Biblically, that word is sin. Maybe we find ourselves trapped in the cycle of a perpetual, perpetual sin over and over and over again. Maybe this is why every year in the United States alone, there are over 20,000 self-help books published. Books to help us be different, to help us be better, to help us bridge that gap that we all feel, that gap of who we are and who we want to be. Let me, can I just say this morning, before we kind of move any further into this, I believe wholeheartedly that every question you are asking, every stirring and wrestling you are feeling in your spirit, whether you believe in Jesus or not, I think the answer is found in Scripture. You're not going to find it in a self-help book. You're not going to find it in a documentary you're gonna find it in an ancient document known as the Bible because it is living and it is active and it has the power to transform us into something and someone that we are not. David says, I have hidden your word in my heart. Like, what does he, what does he mean by that? Like, practically, what does that mean? Now, context matters. David is writing as a, a Jewish person, a Jewish man who was once a Jewish boy. And so to understand when David says, I have hidden your word in my heart, we have to look at Jewish culture a little bit back pre-Jesus and even in first century Palestine. And what's interesting is that the way the schooling system worked for Jewish boys was, was fascinating. And so first, when you were the age of six, you would go to this school called Bet Sefer. And Bet Sefer was a school that would last from the time you were six to the time you were 10 years old. It was a four-year schooling period. And in Bet Sefer, think of it as an elementary school, but for them, the elementary school was all about learning and studying the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, right? The, the law, you have Genesis, Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Numbers, and they're studying those. And here's the thing, by the time every Jewish boy was done at the age of 10, with their elementary school, they would have memorized all five of those first books. Like, like, let that sink in. Some of us, we began a Bible study plan last month, and we decided to read through the Bible in a year, and we got to Deuteronomy or Exodus or Leviticus, and we stopped reading it. They had to memorize the whole thing. And not just memorize it where they could start from the beginning, but their, their rabbi, their teacher could come to them at any moment and say, hey, tell me Exodus 26 verse 2, and they would have to start there and then say it. They knew the word of God. And then the, while most Jewish boys would go to their kind of like trade from there on, they may go back to their family and, and study carpentry or study fishing or whatever, pottery, whatever happens to be. Those that wanted the advanced schooling would go to the next thing called Bet Talmud. And Bet Talmud was from the time they were 10 to the time they were 13. And for those three years, they would intensely, deeply study the 16 prophetic books of the Old Testament to where by the time they were done at the age of 13, ready to be an adult, they would have had all 16 books of the prophets and all five original books memorized, 21 books of the Old Testament memorized. They knew Scripture. 
They knew the word of God. Proverbs 7, 1 through 3 tells us this, how, how serious they took Scripture and the transforming power of the Bible. It says this, check this out. It says, follow my advice, my son. Always treasure my commands. Obey my commands and live. Guard my instructions as you guard your own eyes. What do you do? You tie them on your fingers as a reminder. You write them deep within your hearts. So Jewish boys, because of the, the schooling they had and memorizing these verses, they knew that the Bible, that Scripture, that the Word of God was powerful and transformative, and they wanted to make sure they, they captured that. And so what they would do is take this verse along with Deuteronomy 6, and they would go to their homes, and they would write Scripture all over their walls because they wanted to know that the moment they walked into their place, God was there with them, and they wanted to be reminded of his faithfulness and his goodness and who he was. And then they would take parchment paper and they would write verses down for the day and they would tie them on their wrists or this verse says bind them on their fingers. And when they would go out into public, they would literally take those verses with them and every transaction they made, every hand they shook, every job they did, everything they ate, they could see the word of God and it would remind them of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his transformative power in that moment as they went about their day. And then for special times of the year or for the ones who were kind of the, the really elite, they had these things called phylacteries. And it's, it's weird. This is gonna, they had these boxes they would put on their head with a band going around it. And in this box, they would take scripture. They would take the word of God and put it in there. And so what would happen is as they were having a conversation with somebody, as they were taking in information throughout the day, to them, the information had to go through the word of God before it got to their mind. It was how they filtered their thoughts God's word to them was transformative and powerful. You see, to a Jewish person growing up in the time of Jesus, the Bible, Scripture, was how they knew God. And when I say knew God, I'm not talking about knew about God. I'm not talking about the history of God. They knew what God did. They knew what God did to the Israelites. They knew what God did through the prophets. They knew what God did through the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about they knew God intimately through the pages of Scripture. And for you and I, it is the very place for every question we ask, every desire we have, every want, every change, the things that we feel deep in our soul that we can't even vocalize and express. Scripture has the answer to every one of those why. Because Scripture is the sole place where we're intimately begin to know and understand and love the character and nature of a good God who loves us. It is where we find our home. It's important. It's transformative. Now, besides knowing about God, what else does Scripture bring to us? Whatever, what else happens when we read it? And I could give you tons, hundreds of examples from scripture, but I just chose a couple. And I just want to tell you these, if you're, if you're taking notes, write these down first. The Bible brings power. The Bible brings power. Listen to Hebrews 4, 12. It says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. I love this verse, but it's also one that's incredibly confusing. Like, I remember when I first became somebody who was interested in Jesus, and I gave my life to him, and I remember hearing this verse for the very first time, and the pastor was like, man, the word of God, and he had it like this deep, but the word of God is alive and powerful. I was like, it's a book. How can it be alive? I didn't understand what that meant, and I was very confused. And let me just say this. Maybe you're there this morning, and you're like, I don't understand when it says it's alive and powerful. The Bible is different than any other book you will ever read. 
Now, not what I mean by like the way you read it physically, the way you vocalize it when you read it out loud, or the way you process it in your mind. No, it is just like any other book in that aspect. And that's not heretical for me to say, because it is still, yes, it is words on a page or words on your screen, just like any other book. But the difference is it is alive and it is powerful because the Bible, unlike any other book for centuries, for thousands of years, has had the ability to take someone and change them. It takes people who were dead and makes them alive. It takes people who were lost and makes them found. The Bible is powerful. And I don't know about you, but there are plenty of times in my life I need some power. There are moments in my life where I feel like I am stuck in this perpetual sin. And I'm not, I'm not speaking of big, giant sins. Maybe yours is, but it can mean something just as far as I, I get this spirit of bitterness at times. And no matter how much I fight against it, the bitterness just comes back up at times. I, I can be cynical. I can be critical of things. And I, and I need God's power to come into my life, the words I read on Scripture, to change me, to fill me with joy and goodness and kindness and gladness because God's word has power to show me like a mirror where I am wrong and I need correction. It's powerful. The second thing, the Bible brings healing. The Bible brings healing. Psalm 107, 20 says this. I love this verse. It says, he sent out his word. Just, just picture that. God, God sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Now, Jesus was the word, right? He sent out his word to heal them. All throughout scripture, God is referred to as Jehovah Rapha, the, the healer. It means he is the God who, who steps in and heals and helps his people. But the, the Old Testament imagery around this is, is incredibly beautiful because what it signifies is not someone just healing, but someone showing up and kind of wrapping a blanket or a cloak around someone to, to bandage up their wounds and to comfort them. And so God's word goes and it heals you. you what do you mean by that? Like if I have a, a sprained ankle and I read scripture, my ankle's gonna get better. No, 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 maybe, but I, I, I don't know. Here's what I mean by this. Maybe you have a relationship in your life that once was close and now it's broken and you would give anything for it to be healed. On the pages of scripture, you will find the words that allow that change in your heart. Maybe, Maybe when you were young, you were in an abusive relationship, whether it was physical, uh, emotional, or, or sexual, and you have struggled with that, and it, it haunts you, and it, it bothers you, and you are, you are just tormented by it. On the pages of Scripture, you find healing. It doesn't make it go away, but you find comfort and healing. That's the beauty of God's Word. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who have said, and maybe you've experienced this, they've said, the very thing I needed was what I found in scripture. And what amazes me is most of the time we don't even know we need it until we read it. It's powerful. It brings healing. Third, the Bible brings guidance. The Bible brings guidance. Psalm 119, 105 says this, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Scripture is a guide. It guides the feet. 
Now, for a lot of us, uh, let me just pause for a second, because I think for a lot of us, whether we are a believer or not, we are trying to figure out in life what something wants for us. For those of us that are, are Christ followers, we would say, I'm trying to discern God's will in life, right? Like maybe you have a job situation, like, man, I just wish I knew what God wanted for me in this, or with my kids, what God wants for me, or maybe I'm about to start a dating relationship, and I'm not sure if I should, you know, propose, what does God want for this in me? Or I'm about to retire and start a second career, what does God want for me? And we're always trying to discern God. God's will. And here's what I think, and we're going to pause for a second and just kind of talk about God's will for a moment because this is important. I want you to picture kind of like a, a soccer goal, right, like with the net in the middle. On one side of the goal, we have the post. Let's call this the providential will of God. Now, the providential will of God is a very fancy word for just saying the will of God that is going to happen regardless of any human intervention. You say, what do you mean by that, Adam? I mean things like God was going to create the earth regardless of what any human being ever thought was going to happen. It's providential. God was going to send his son Jesus to rescue and redeem humanity regardless of any human behavior. God is going to one day send his son Jesus again to rescue and redeem all of the church, the global church, and pull it to him and then recreate a whole new creation. It is his providential will of God, right? That's one goalpost. On the other side of the goalpost, we have the revealed will of God. This is what is revealed in Scripture about how we live and follow God. It's how God tells us his commands, his, his law, his wishes, his desires for our life. It's revealed in Scripture, and we choose to follow it. Now, in the middle is kind of this blurry area we're going to call the personal will of God. It's the goalpost. It's all where we want to be. We want to make sure that whatever decision we're making in life is right between the goalposts. It's in the net. It's the personal will of God for us. Now, here's what's interesting to me. I talk to people all the time who are always trying to discern the will of God for a decision in their life. They want to know the personal will of God for them. And they're praying about it. They're seeking counsel about it. They're talking about it. But they just can't figure out why it's not becoming clear to them. And one of the things I always ask them to begin with is how is your life in obedience to the commandments found in Scripture? And they always say, why? Why would you ask that? Why would God reveal his personal will if you're ignoring his revealed will? Why would God show you the answer to your question when he's already revealed so much else that you're ignoring? You see, scripture is the revealed will of God. Most of the things you're asking, that I am asking, that we are asking, we have already been revealed to us. The problem is, we don't like the answer. We don't want to obey. Scripture is a guide. Fourth, the Bible brings freedom. The Bible brings freedom. Psalm 119, 45 says it this way. I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. Now, when I came in, maybe you're like I am. When I, when I first became a believer, um, I really struggled with the concept that the Bible was freedom, I remember just kind of hearing people talk about, oh, the Bible is just an ancient document, this ancient book that is full of rules and laws and regulations, and it's full of all the things you're not supposed to do. And maybe you have felt the same way before, because any cursory review of any of the Old Testament, and even some of Jesus' sayings, right, he just said them in a nicer way, but he's still telling you what not to do. We find that we read it and we say, man, it's just a bunch of things trying to restrict me, to control me, to cripple me from having fun and enjoying life. 
And we would say, man, there's a great example of this, right? There are like 500-something commandments in the Old Testament. There are tons of law that we have to follow and obey as Old Testament people. It is very restrictive. It is very demanding. It is very crippling. Maybe. Maybe the flip side to do that would be if, if God said there's 500 things you can't do, what about the millions of things you can do? And let me give you an example. Uh, my family and I, we bought a house when we moved here, and we have a little bit of land. And we have this, this huge yard, and it's easy for me to tell my kids, my two boys, hey, you can go outside and you can play in the yard. Do whatever you want. Have fun in the yard. Now, they can respond in one of two ways. They can be like, oh, Dad, we can't leave the yard. That's the worst thing ever. Like, we have to stay in the yard. There's nothing fun to do in the yard. We want to go play in the street. We want to go down to the neighbor's house. Why do we have to stay in the yard that's so restrictive, that's so controlling, there's no freedom? Or they could look at it and say, we can do whatever we want in the yard? Like, you mean we can climb those trees? We can shoot our bow and arrow at that rabbit that's running around? We can try to wade through the river. We don't have a river at our yard, but I'm just, get illustration purposes, right? Like, we can do all of these things, Dad. That's an immense amount of freedom. You see, boundaries do not equal control. Boundaries equal freedom. On the pages of Scripture, what we think is control is freedom for living an abundant life. Right? If all of Scripture points to Jesus, Jesus said, I came to set you free. I came to let you live life abundantly. So obviously, He doesn't want to restrict you and control you. It brings freedom. Freedom is found in the Word of God. And so, here's what I want to do just to kind of wrap up this morning. And we did this back when we were doing our giving series. We just kind of took a, a pause and had a, a, an incredibly practical moment. I just want to take a moment and kind of help us all be on the same page when it comes to how we read or study or engage with Scripture. And I don't want to assume anything, right? I, I don't want to assume that everyone here is actively reading the Bible. But I also don't want to assume here that no one here is reading the Bible. I just want to, want to come in and level the playing field. And why does this matter? Because according to most statistics recently, whether you're looking at one or the other, it's anywhere from 62 to around 68% of people would say, the studies would say that average or like a, a normally attending churchgoers, not people who don't believe in Jesus, not people outside of the church, but normal attending churchgoers, 62 to 68% of them only read the Bible one time a month or less. Now, I'm not trying to shame you. Maybe you're there. Don't raise your hand, okay? Like, just relax. We're not going to do a poll. We're not going to do that. What I want to do is I want to make this as simple as possible to help us begin to read Scripture. Why? Because as your pastor, it matters. I stand before you today because I read Scripture 18 years ago in my apartment. It is powerful and life-changing. And here is my concern. We have a book that has every answer to every question we have ever wanted. It tells us intimately about a God who wants to know us and love us. And we neglect it. And I desperately want the Mount to be a place where we engage in Scripture. And so the first thing is this, when it comes to reading scripture, studying the Bible, the first thing you need to do is you need to make time. 
You need to, to make time. And you're like, that's it, I'm done. I can never do that, Adam. You don't know my schedule. <laughs> I, I know, right? Like you're commuting, you've got kids, you've got soccer, you've got this. But listen to me. You have the time if it's a priority. And in fact, R.C. Sproul, a famous theologian, he says this, and I love this quote. He says, we fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, and not so much because it is dull or boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. You make time for what's important. You, you make time for your social media feeds. You make time for your Netflix binges. You make time for your sports center. You make time, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. Don't leave here being like, okay, I can never have fun. No, no, I'm saying, what would it look like for you to begin to intentionally make time to read scripture on a daily basis? And you're like, does it really matter that much? Yes. Reading scripture 15 minutes a day through the course of 365 days, you would read the entire Bible, the entire story of God and how much he loves you and pursues you from Genesis to Revelation. That's a lot. And here's what I know. It will change you. So make time. And we just talked about a whole series about creating habits and creating routines. Make time. Create a habit. Create a routine of you engaging in scripture. The second thing is find a place. Find a place. Maybe find somewhere that every time you're going to engage in scripture, it's that same consistent place. And you're like, man, that, that sounds weird. Like, is it like a magical chair? Do I pray over it, put hands on it? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Like, like, let me give you an example. At home, I have an office at home, and I have a desk, and I have a chair behind it, and I sit there, and it's where I, I work on things, and there's this chair on the other side of the desk. It's just this one leather chair, and it's where my kids sit a lot of times. When they come in there, I'll be working, I'll be reading, they'll sit in there, and they'll read with me, and we'll talk back and forth. The only time I ever sit in that chair, right, because I normally sit behind the desk, the only time I ever sit in that chair is in the mornings or the evenings when I'm engaging in scripture. And here's what's interesting. I've lived in this house six months now. I found myself the other day where I went and sat down in that chair because one of my kids had taken my desk and he was spinning around in the, the chair, you know, and I sat in the leather chair and I sat down and I instinctively reached down to the side to pick up my Bible and it wasn't there. I had created a habit. I have a chair in my office. I have, I have like couches and chairs in my office here at the church. There is one of them I only sit in. Other people sit in it, but I only sit in it when I'm reading scripture. I'm creating a trigger, a habit. What would it look like for you to find a place where when you're there, you engage in scripture? And maybe it's, maybe it's different for you. Maybe it's, you know, when, you, when you're commuting and you pull into the parking lot, you take a moment before you walk inside and you spend 15 minutes on your phone doing it right there. You're creating a habit, a trigger of what it could look like to find a place to read and engage in scripture. The third thing is choose a translation. Choose a translation. If you're anything like me, when I first started reading the Bible, I remember going to the store, which I guess now would be Amazon, but if you go to Amazon right now and you just type in Christian Bible, you're gonna get like 40,000 million hits, right? You're not gonna know what to do. If you go to the store and try to find one, there's all these different translations, which makes sense because the Bible is centuries old and every time it goes into a new language, they, they translate it differently and we have hundreds of translations in English and the reason is they all point to specific things about the Bible. Let me give you an example of this. You can see a translation chart up here. On one side, we have what are called word-for-word -word or literal translations. These are translations where people say, hey, we're going to take the original Greek manuscripts, and what we are going to do is we are going to translate it as accurately as we can, word-for-word. -word. So if the Bible says, John went 
walking. They would translate into English, John went walking. They wouldn't modify it. They wouldn't change it. They would try to be as literal in their translation as they can. Now, it's never going to be perfect because the way the Greek language works is it's not necessarily the same sentence structure we have in English. They would take verb endings and move them around and put them places. So there's always a little bit of translation, but this is the most word-for-word, most literal translation you can find on that end of the spectrum. Now, here's the problem. It's accurate and it's literal, but it's a little bit harder to read. Why? Because they're taking a language that has not been spoken for over a thousand years and making it literal into English in the 21st century. As you move closer to the middle, you move into what's called a thought for thought type of translation. And in these, what they do is they take the idea, the thought, they, they would read the sentence, and if the sentence said, John went walking, they would say, okay, let's make that a little more for our English. We would say, John went for a walk. They would take the thought, and they would add and subtract a little bit, but it would be literal, it would be kind of a, a thought for thought, and it would still be very accurate, but it would just be a little more easier to read and a little more easy to comprehend for us. And on the far end of the spectrum, we have what's called an idea for idea or a paraphrase. This is the loosest style you can get. What they would do is they would read maybe a whole passage or a whole couple, ch- a whole couple of verses, and they would say, okay, what's the idea that's trying to be communicated here? How can we express that in 21st century English? For instance, if it said, John went walking, and then he saw a goat, they would say, John was out for a stroll, and he ran by a goat when he was walking. Same concept, paraphrased idea for idea. You see the progression. What I've given you up here on the screen, if you're looking to find a a translation of scripture, I've given you the four that I would recommend, the four that I use the most often. If you're diving into reading scripture for the very first time, my recommendation for you is to start with either the New Living Translation or the New International Version, right there in the middle. They are the easiest, most accessible. I would not start with the paraphrase on the end. The paraphrase is going to confuse you even more because it just kind of takes things and like it even adds in like slang words and things like that. And you're like, I don't remember Jesus saying slang words. What's happening here? That's more for you just like if you're already reading the Bible and you just want to kind of understand it differently. If you are actively engaging in the Bible and you have an NIV or an NLT, maybe for you this next step is to kind of shift more to an ESV. Why? Because it gets you closer and closer to the original language, which stretches you even more, and you can begin to see the way the sentence structure actually occurred. But here's the most important thing. Pick one. Don't just go on Amazon and try to find one because you might get a version that doesn't make sense. And these are the four I recommend. These are the four I use most consistently around here. So the next thing is, I want you to pick a plan. Now, there are lots of options for picking a plan. It is really hard to just open up the Bible and be like, all right, I'm going to start reading today and just open it up. You're most likely going to end up in the middle of the New Testament, which is an incredibly hard and difficult place to start. And so you need to pick a plan, not just for what you're going to read, but how you're going to read it. And you can go online and you can find tons of plans. You can go to the YouVersion Bible app and you can get all kinds of plans. We've even given you a plan that you can scan the QR code up on the screen. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a new series titled The Final Week. And what we're going to do is for about five weeks, we're going to look at the final week of Jesus' life and all the things that he went through. And this plan will actually begin next Wednesday, but as we go through through the series, you will be reading those events with us. They will line up with what we're talking about on Sunday. So it's a great chance for you to begin next Wednesday, and it lasts all the way to Easter. If you're just saying, man, I want to start reading scripture, and I don't know where to start, get that plan. You can go in our Mount app, and you can find it on there as well. You just kind of scroll to the right until it says Bible reading plan. We would love for you to do that with us. Not only do you need to pick the plan like that, but you also need to have a plan for how you're going to read it. 
Sometimes the Bible is complex and difficult, and if you just dive into it, you're going to get a little bit confused. And so maybe you need a, a commentary, a resource to go with it, to, to read side by side. There's a great series called God's Word for You, and it's a short series about each book, and they're really easy to read, and they have questions to help you and learn as you process through it. But the most important thing they do in those, or any commentary is going to do, is it's going to make sure you understand the context and the genre you are reading, because this is important, because here's the danger. If you're not used to reading the Bible and you just go and open it up and you're like, bam, I found myself in Leviticus. And if you read Leviticus the same way you read Psalms or the same way you read one of the Gospels, it's going to be very confusing in your life. They are different genres. One is poetry. One is history. One is biography. They are different and this makes sense to us. For instance, we began this series by comparing the Bible to Harry Potter. So I want to give you this. There's two things going to be on the screen. You have Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows and the New York Times. We all know that if we picked these up, we would read these very differently, right? Nobody goes and picks up Harry Potter and says, okay, I'm going to read this as if it's true. Because what you would do is after about a couple chapters, you would begin enrolling your kids in a wizard school called Hogwarts, and you would try to find a hidden alleyway trying to find out where you can buy wands and things for them. At the same time, no one reads the New York Times as if it is fiction. You don't read the New York Times and say, man, this is a great story. I can't wait for the movie to come out about this guy. Like, oh, man, that must be a crazy murder. It's going to be awesome to see. Like, I can't wait to dress up like that guy on Halloween. That's not how you read it. They are different genres. One of the things I hear over and over and over again from people is I don't understand the Bible because they don't understand the genre. You've got to know what's prophecy, what's history, what's poetry, and so on. Get a plan for how you read it. So pick a time, pick a place, pick a translation, and pick a plan. And then just see what happens. Just begin reading it. Just lean in. You don't have to read a lot. If you want to read a lot, read a lot. Just start with a little and begin reading it. And here's my prayer for you as your pastor that we, the, the mount, that all of us would echo the prayer of David in Psalm 119.16 when he says this, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. My prayer is that every single one of us, even if we don't even believe in Jesus yet, would pick up the pages of scripture and delight in it, not neglect it. Because here's the reality, the book that we have has every answer we would ever need to every question we will ever ask. And my fear is that many of us are taking it for granted and neglecting it. And it is so readily available to us. And that has not always been the case. In fact, if you go back just a couple hundred years, you see a period of the history in the world where the Bible was not accurately available for the common person. And in fact, in, in the Middle Ages alone, we see a time period where the church, the, the Roman Catholic church, the, the, the leading kind of religious capital at the time said that the only official translation of the Bible is the Latin version and the common person, the ordinary everyday person can't read it. Why? Not because it was dangerous, because it was too powerful for them. They couldn't read it. It would be, it would be hard to understand, but also it would begin to change them and make them a different person. So we can't let them have access to it. So we're going to limit it. We're going to control it. We're going to restrict it. Imagine growing up for most 
most of your life wanting to read what God says to you but never having access to it. And then through history, some guys by the name of, you know, Martin Luther and John Huss and William Tyndale begin to change all of that. And the story of William Tyndale is actually quite fascinating to me. William Tyndale was, while, while Martin Luther's working on the first official translation into German, he begins working on this translation into English. And the king of England found out and was furious, was angry. He thought, there is no way the common man, the common woman should have access to the word of God. I'm not going to allow this because when they begin to read it and it begins to change them, they will become dangerous and they will realize new things and they will change and be transformed and I can't have that. So he put it on the banned books list. And he actively, as the king of England, began searching out the English Bible and burning it and destroying it. And so William Tyndale, in a moment of panic, he flees out of England and he goes to the mainland of Europe and he begins there just printing and printing and printing more and more English Bibles and he begins smuggling them back into England. And I'm not even joking when I say smuggling, he's hiding them in bales of cotton and putting them in bales of hay and they're putting them in carts, driving them back into England just so people can read the word of God. The king finds out about this and he's furious So he sends all of his men out, kind of undercover and in secret, to begin buying all these illegal copies just so he can burn them and destroy them. And William Tyndale, being the the great entrepreneur and businessman that he is, he takes all the king's money, the money that he's using to buy the Bibles, and instead of taking it as profit and going to retire, he just doubles his efforts and uses the king's money to print more English Bibles to be smuggled right back in. And there's this perpetual cycle until one day they find him. And the king captures William Tyndale and they imprison him for 500 days. And over and over again, they ask him, just stop, just stop printing the Bible. It's too dangerous, it's too radical, it changes people too much, just stop. And he keeps saying no. And after 500 days, they said, we've had enough. And they take him and to execute him, they tie him to a stake and they begin to catch it on fire. And as he's there burning on this stake, the final words he says, William Tyndale cries out, Father, open the eyes of the king to see the power of the Bible. Three years later, the king of England not only takes it off the ban list, but begins funding and producing and printing the English translation of the Bible. It has been banned, it has been burned, it has been attacked, it has been criticized, it has been mocked, but it still stands strong. Are you neglecting it? The most powerful book in the entire world, at your fingertips, are you neglecting it? Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for you, for your word. Father, we pray that as we, that we would become people of the word. 
God, as we continue praying, maybe you're here this morning, and not to shame you, not, not to call you out, but just in a moment of confession, if you would say, man, Adam, that's me. I have been neglecting the word of God, and I, this year, in the next weeks, in the next months, I want to be someone who engages and reads scripture. I would love to pray with you and pray for you. If that's you, just whatever campus you are at, would you just slip up your hand right now in a bold act of confession? I see your hands all over the room. Father, I pray for every hand that is up, that we would hunger and thirst for your word, that we would be people who long to read scripture and to see the power it has in transforming our lives. Jesus, we love you. As we continue praying, I just, I just wanna ask this real quick. Maybe you're here today and you haven't read scripture because you don't know Jesus. Can I just say, as you begin to read scripture, the thing you are going to see brightly more than any other thing is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loves you so much that 2,000 years ago, he came to earth to die for you in place of your sins, your punishment, so that you could repent and turn to God and live a new life as a new creation and no longer continue living in struggle and condemnation the way you are now. He came to set you free and make you new. And maybe this morning, that's what you need to hear, is that the word of God is not only powerful on the pages of scripture, but powerful in your heart. If that's you, maybe for the first time in your life, whatever campus you were at, would you simply lift up your hand and say, Jesus, I wanna believe in you for the very first time. If your hand is up, let's pray together. Father, I am a sinner. I need your grace. Come into my life. Make me new. Be my king and be my Lord. Jesus, save me. Amen.